Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers part 3 of his sermon titled, The Golden Chain of Salvation. chapter 8, we'll read verses 28 to 30, uh, one last time, Lord willing. While you're turning, um, we will uh, have a business meeting uh, this coming Wednesday night. So for you members especially, we invite you to come out and join to kind of hear what's going on. If you're not a member, you're still welcome to attend and hear what's going on. Uh, we have some uh, members uh, to officially receive into the congregation and then we want to give an update on where we are in the building procedure. Now, there are some uh, site development plans that we have been waiting on that are overdue by about 80 days now. We are uh, very frustrated and are uh, spending time calling, putting pressure. Those guys that are on that building team, they're the ones leading this and doing this, uh, putting pressure, calling, trying to get that. We have been assured that we will have these things by this meeting Wednesday night. We want to be able to show those and just kind of tell you what's going on. So that's some of what's going on behind the scenes there. Some things are just out of our hands. I guess they consider us just small fish and uh, all the rest of the projects and things. Uh, please pray for the process that's there as it is obvious we are ready for a building um i believe it was two weekends ago we believe we broke another attendance record uh over the course of the weekend so the lord continues to bring fruit uh how many people come here is not the great aim and the great goal of what we do but we want to reach as many people for christ as we can uh so note that that is coming up wednesday night romans chapter 8 uh, verses 28 uh, to 30. Let's read this and ask for our God's grace. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's ask for God's help. Um, Father, we, we pray that you will come now and give great grace. We have worshiped you um, in ways that you have directed us. You've told us to read your word publicly. You have called us to come draw near in prayer you have told us to sing your praises. We have uh, fellowship together. We have um, approached your throne, bowed ourselves before you, sought your face in these ways. And, and now, Lord, in this way, this way that you have created, you have given through the preaching of your word, we ask God you'll bless this element of worship. And Lord, give us your help, we pray. Please give us of your spirit, Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds that are able to comprehend. We pray for the light bulbs uh, to come on, the realization, the understanding, the comprehension, uh, Lord, will come. But then beyond that, the change you bring, Lord, by changing our thinking, transforming us from the inside out, uh, leading to a, a change of life. Please bring it about. Show us more of yourself. Increase our worship. Increase our reverence, O oh God, we pray. Increase our gratitude. Increase our, our confidence. Increase our security. We pray also as we're looking at these uh, wonderful things, these uh, joyful things, that also it would stir to convict our souls of sin and give us desire to obey you more that comes out of love and gratitude for your gospel. So Lord, I, I pray, protect this service. I, I pray that every soul in here will not be irreverent, but will reverence you, O oh God, by giving you the worship that you are worthy of. So help us, God, we pray. Please come, give me grace to preach, O oh Lord. Sustain me, um, just even the ability to breathe and speak. And Lord, I pray all of us to receive. So please help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
A young man, a young man attended church one Lord's Day in Dartmouth, England, and they came to hear a Puritan preacher by the name of John Flavel delivered the message that morning. Flavel preached from a text that was describing the curse of God, the curse of God that comes on all who sin against God. All have sinned against him. Therefore, all mankind, all who are in Adam are under that curse and therefore all need salvation. The answer is Christ and he invited souls to come and believe. That young man named Luke Short sat there unaffected, uninterested, didn't care, left the service and went on with his life. That young man grew up, eventually sailed to America, acquired land, became a farmer, and lived out his life. Lived out the duration of his days. But there came another day, 85 years after hearing that sermon by Flavel, that he walked out into his fields and he sat down and just kind of started to reflect on his life. And for some reason, he recalled that sermon that he had heard 85 years previously. And he reflected on the, the terrors of what it meant to be under the curse of God. For the first time in his life, he began to just think and take seriously his own soul's fate and eternity. And remembering how Flavel had preached the gospel and the call to be saved right there in those farm fields, 85 years after hearing that sermon, he believed and turned to Christ and was converted right there. We've seen the book of Romans say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And God saves people using a variety of different earthly circumstances. Some people are born again the very first time they hear the gospel. I'd say it's probably the case for most others. There's a process, a season of hearing it and wrestling through the truths before finally coming to a point of surrender and repentance. Some people can tell you the, the date, maybe even the time on their watch when they were born again. A great many other Christians can't tell you what day it was. They just know it was sometime in between here and here. I think I've told you the story before of C.S. Lewis. Once an atheist, he took a trip with a friend and they traveled by motorcycle. C.S. Lewis climbed him to one of those little sidecars and he had been greatly wrestling through whether or not he believed the gospel, believed that Jesus is the Christ. He said he stepped into that sidecar an unbeliever, but by the time they arrived at their destination, he was a Christian. We love to hear the dramatic conversion stories of people who have been saved out of really horrid kinds of evil, gangs and prostitution and drug addiction. We love to hear when God dramatically turns people's lives around, but even if you, Christian, think that your story of how you came to faith is boring, every conversion is a miracle. Every conversion represents a massive and monumental work of God to deliver that soul. Literally, this is not just a metaphor out of death and into life. Transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light sprinkled with the blood of Christ, uh, made a temple of the Holy Spirit, adopted as sons and daughters, uh, made a new creation, forgiven of sins, washed in the water, made a citizen of heaven, receiving promises and hope of eternal life. There's no such thing as a boring salvation. And as we've been learning in this passage, every soul's salvation began even before the earth was made. Before the stars were cast into the sky, God foreknew a people. He designed them in his mind and those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined them to glory. 
to joy, to become glorious like Christ is glorious. But in order to bring them, to bring us to that everlasting joy and glory, there's a lot of work that would need to be done. A great work of redemption, delivering out of the rotting tomb and into everlasting life. And verses 28 to 30 have have been a summary of this work of redemption, of this work of salvation, explaining from start to finish a a brief overview of this golden chain of salvation. What we're ready for this morning is this uh, third link in the chain. So we've seen those whom he foreknew, one link. He also predestined, second link, We're ready for three, four, and five, finishing out this passage here. So number link number three is they seem who predestined, he also called. Now the Bible speaks of a calling um, in, in a couple different ways. And, and so when you're reading scripture and you, you encounter that word, if you only think it's used in one way that can create a little bit of confusion because the way Jesus uses it in places like Matthew 22, where I'll address here in just a little bit, and Romans 8, it's a different way that he uses the word. There is, uh, now we humans have given names to these different kinds of calls just so we can make sense of it there, but we refer to it as the general call and then effectual call or effective call, meaning it works. It is effective. The kind of call that is used here in verse 30, where he says, these whom he predestined, he also called. Uh, This is the language of the effectual call that when God calls somebody in this way, it is always effective. It's always works. It always draws uh, the soul to him. The general call is something different. So I'm, even though the text doesn't explain uh, what the general call is, I'm going to spend just a little bit of time with it. That way we make sure we understand what it is and then it's distinction from what's used here, the effectual call. The general call is just when someone hears the message of the gospel and the invitation to then come receive Jesus and be saved. That's the general call. If you, uh, at your workplace, to your children, you explain the message of Christ and you call them to come uh, repent and believe, that's, that's the general call, the invitation to come and be saved. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. Where you stand right now, if... You have never understood that you must be saved. If you have never turned to Christ, trusting in him, not thinking that yourself and your goodness saves you, but trusting in him, that he is your only hope. And you have looked to him and called on his name, uh, come and surrendered and submitted yourself Asking that he would save you. If you have never come to him like that, then where you are right now is you are under the dark cloud of the wrath of God. And what God explains to you, what God calls to you is to come to him, receive Jesus, and you will be saved from your sins and the hell that they deserve because you've broken God's law. So if you've never done that, you should do that. Come to Jesus. That's the general call. Anybody who hears that, uh, like, like is stated, uh, Isaiah 45, 22, that's one of the places in the Bible where we hear the general call, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. So the reason why we need to clarify that is there are some places where this word is used differently. So uh, a, a place where the general call is referred to is uh, Matthew 22, In Matthew 22, Jesus told the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, It's a really powerful parable. And what happens in that is uh, there's a great king who throws a a great feast to celebrate his marriage. And what he does is he sends out his servants. He sends out his slaves to go invite folks to his uh, wedding feast. And he invites the kind of people that we might expect a king to invite at the first. But what happens is, the people refuse. 
they're invited, but they're, they're uninterested. They don't come. Uh, so the servants come back to the king and they report, well, we invited them, but they were uninterested in coming. The king sends them back out again and he says, tell them, I have slain the fatted calves. I have prepared a great feast. There is a feast of joy and richness that I am inviting them to go send them out again to invite. And so the, the messengers go back out and they uh, repeat the invitation and all the people make excuses Oh, I've purchased a plot of land. I need to go check it out. Oh, it's raining, etc. It's it's meant to speak of Israel uh, rejecting Christ, rejecting the salvation that God had offered to them. It's meant to speak of the fact that oftentimes it is um, those that we would expect to be the ones to enter uh, the, the great kingdom, the elite of the world are often the ones who first reject. And so what happens is the king sends his servants back out. And he says, this time I want you to go into the highways and the streets. And I want you to just start inviting everyone. And so they do. And a great crowd comes and gathers. A great crowd, a crowd comes to the wedding feast, both good people and evil, Jesus says. They're all welcome, which is referring to the fact that the gospel invitation is open to all. The gospel invitation is not you need to clean yourself up and make yourself proper and righteous and good. And then maybe Jesus will want you. The gospel invitation is come. Even while you are still in your sin, you do not have to clean up your life in order to come to the gospel. Oh, you will have to clean up your life. Let's make that very clear. Uh, repentance is the resolution, the internal resolution to turn away from sin, rebellion, disobedience, and to come submit yourself to God. The work of sanctification is growing in obedience as a Christian. You, you will, you are agreeing to come clean up your life when you turn to Christ. But you have to understand the, the process. Even while you are in your sin, the invitation is given. So what happens is a big group comes. The, the, the halls are filled. The king walks through the crowds. So already you're seeing kind of the general invitation and in some of the ways that that's referred to. But the king walks through the crowds. And as he's walking through, he encounters a man who has not put on wedding clothes. So meaning he's... He's not put on proper attire to show respect to the king. He's not giving proper honor to the king. So, you know, in the parable, this would be meant to demonstrate someone who, who comes to Christ. They kind of heed the general call, but they do not come with a heart of surrender. They do not come with repentance. They do not come and, and bow the knee. And so the king commands the man to be bound and thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus then ends the parable with this statement. For many are called, but few are chosen. The way that the word called is used there in that parable is the general call. And this is speaking of the fact that the church... The people of God, we go out into the world, evangelism, missions to our children. We, we make the message of the gospel known. We are calling people to come to a feast of richness. We're calling them to come to eternal life. Many are called. There will even be among those who are called and heed the call. There will be some who do not truly come to him that internally have not actually received Christ and repented. So here's the reality of those on the earth who hear the general call of the gospel. The fact is most will not respond positively. I mean, is this not what Jesus meant when he said that the road is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it, but the road is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who find it. Most of the population will reject the gospel. If, you, if you're new to studying the Bible, uh, again, that would be one of those thoughts that might kind of trip you up a little bit. And you might have some disagreement with because you're used to hearing the world always given this positive spin to humanity. 
But Jesus says this is the reality. Most of the world will reject the gospel. But even of that group that does hear the general call and come gather, come call themselves Christians, even amongst that group, there will be those that are not genuinely in Christ. The effectual call, on the other hand, so that was the general call, the invitation, the effectual calling that the Bible speaks of, that's what Romans 8 is referring to. It is different. It is an, an internal call, a work of the power of God. It is a drawing of God that is always effective. Um, so John 6, and if you, if you want to flip there, maybe throw a, your pen or bulletin or something like this, we're going to reference John 6 quite a bit. I do think that uh, John 6 and this passage in Romans 8 are directly linked. Oftentimes, by the way, what we see the apostles do are further explain statements that Jesus made. John 6, 44, look at this statement that's here and we're, we're going to spend some time with it. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Let me read it again. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That drawing there, that is effectual calling. It's another word that you can use for it. But here, let me, let me give a bit of an explanation here. There is a complete inability to respond positively to God that we have in our flesh left to ourselves. There's a complete inability that we have to love God, to want God, to come to God that we have left to ourselves. When Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the father draws him, Jesus is not saying that there is this restriction that there's all these people trying to repent and Jesus says, we don't want you. That's not what he's saying. That's not the cannot. The cannot is not restriction, it's inability. Meaning we don't have what it takes. We lack the ability to come to God left to ourselves. Trapped in our sin, left to ourselves. Listen, we love sin. We love it. Who we are apart from Christ who we are before uh, the work of God, the Holy Spirit has been at work in us. We, we, we love sin. Now, of course, we don't love all of it. And so you might be sitting there objecting, saying, well, there are all kinds of sins that I, that I hate. We all have sins that we despise, but we all have sin that we love, that is delicious to our flesh. We all have sins that, that even as believers who have been walking with Christ for decades that are still struggles to put away because it's so enticing, it's so alluring. And left to ourselves, that sin and, and that trajectory, that lifestyle of indulging ourselves, it tastes good. It's what we want. Left to ourselves, our taste buds don't find Jesus sweet. We find indulging my flesh. That's what's sweet. Left to ourselves. We orient all of our lives around this existence that's all about the indulgence of the flesh. Now, again, you, you could be hearing this and objecting, thinking to yourself, well, I, I'm just nothing but nice to people and I, I follow the Ten Commandments and, and I do all these kinds of things. And what I want to say is you, you, you need to read your Bible. Because when you read the word, like, and you start like really living in it, what, what you're going to start to see is there is an awful lot of your life that you're calling good. God calls it evil. You're going to find that there are an awful lot of good things that we do. And really, when we get down to it, we find out we have some really wicked reasons why we're drawn to do them. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Listen to me. It dominates our lives. It, it directs the ambitions and aims of our life left to ourselves. It is one of the things that happens 
uh, when in walking with Christ for years is you come to think uh, low, more lowly of yourself 40 years into following Christ than the first day you came. You, you will be more obedient 40 years in but you will think of yourself as less because now you're understanding the word of God more. The Holy Spirit has been working to show you more of the nastiness that's in there that we haven't always seen. Left to ourselves, we don't want God. Left to ourselves, we want to indulge. We don't want God. Left to ourselves, mankind likes religion, that's its own discussion sometime, but not the one true and living God. Our sinful condition is such that we're not as bad as we could be, but we don't want God. Left to ourselves, we have a complete inability to love God because we don't find him desirable in the flesh. We're, we're like, yeah, I, I know there's been some stomach virus this week, so I'll try not to turn your stomachs too much. We're, we're like maggots rooting around and somebody comes and offers us delicacies and we're like, no, no, I got a rotten coon carcass over here. It's, it's really good. Yeah, it's too far. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but but the pro what's the problem there? The problem is the nature. The problem is desires. The problem is the taste buds. In our flesh, our nature, our taste buds, our desires is that I want to live and indulge myself. I don't want God. I want to be careful not to go too far down a rabbit trail, but sometime uh, take a look at Luke 12 again in that passage where Jesus talks about the man who tore down his old barns and built bigger ones and what God says, the declaration of the entirety of his life. You read that and one of the things you can kind of think is, boy, that sounds an awful lot like just the regular way of life that we are used to seeing in the world. The regular way of life is one of ignoring God and indulging self. Scripture shows us that the goal and the purpose of life is a reorientation. Apart from Christ, we don't want God. So here, here is where we're getting to, and this is the significant kind of transition here. If God did not do something that changed our nature, our taste buds, our heart inside of us, we would not want him. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This drawing, this is the effectual calling that Romans 8:30 speaks of. This is a calling that is always effective. That, that's why we call it effectual or effective calling. It means it works. When God calls somebody in this way, it is going to work. That, that person will be drawn. They, they, they will begin to find the gospel as sweet. They will begin to desire that which they did not used to desire. The, the taste buds begin to change. Uh, the Baptist Catechism says, um, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our eyes in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our will, he does constrain and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Lazarus rose from the dead because Jesus came to him and him personally. Jesus came to his tomb. Jesus did not just simply come to a cemetery with a whole bunch of bodies in the ground and say, please, would somebody come and love me? He came to Lazarus's tomb and called Lazarus by name. He spoke, Lazarus, come forth. That's the metaphor that we are given. That's the metaphor we are given. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus called him by name. This effectual calling is a personal, internal, individual work of 
drawing. So, so what we are not saying is that effectual calling is just like, you know, if the Holy Spirit decides to work in a special way today, that there's just sort of, sort of weird movement and God doesn't know who, but just a bunch of people will want him. No, it is personal, individual, coming and calling you by name. Lazarus walked out of the tomb and yes, he chose to do that. Okay, but listen, the angels in heaven were not going, man, that Lazarus, he's what a guy, you know. What they were marveling over was the power of God that raised him from the dead. Yeah, Lazarus chose to walk out of the tomb. The angels were not cheering his power, okay. That's what a guy does who's been raised from the dead. The, the miracle is the work of God to raise him. Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was not out looking for Jesus. He was laying there. That's what dead people do. If God had not moved, Lazarus just would have continued in his deadness. And that is the illustration that God repeatedly uses in the Old Testament and the New Testament for this a new birth conversion drawing that he works. And so, so Christian, if you are in Christ, it is because God did a work of personally calling you by name. And if God had not done this, you and I would have continued to just carry on with life like the rest of the world. Just carry on busying ourselves with our work and our job, caring about our money, our houses, our land, our comforts, our pleasures, and just making all of our life about just being amoebas that are constantly just grabbing more, 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 more pleasure. People might've even called you a very moral person because you didn't rob banks or commit adultery, but the world's standards are not God's. And you would have just carried on with your life, but never coming to God. For you who are in Christ, you are in him because God came and drew you. Uh, let, let me show this to you in, a, in another passage, uh, Acts uh, 16, Acts 16, 14. Um, but by the way, one of the things I, I love about how the Bible teaches things is that there will be passages that are uh, didactic in nature, meaning they just kind of say, they just sort of teach something like uh, spelling it out with an outline form, okay? Um, those who be predestined, they also called. But then the Bible will also show examples. So here's an example of God calling someone. Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a, a worshiper of God. Notice she's not converted. She's not saved. She's got the right God, but she does not have the gospel. She's not born again. A worshiper of God was listening, okay, as Paul is preaching the gospel here. And then watch this. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. There's the drawing of God. There's effectual calling. Um, sometime on your own, read uh, Acts 9 and look at the conversion of Saul. Look at the drawing of God. Look at the work of God. Saul was getting saved even though Saul wasn't on board yet. Okay, It was happening. The, the power of God, the sovereignty of God was bringing it. God did the work to bring about his conversion. God works this effectual calling. That's why Ephesians 2 and other places speak of faith as a gift of God. Faith is what you must place in the Lord Jesus to be saved. And the very faith you need, it is a gift of God. He helps. He stirs. He creates faith. Two times uh, in the New Testament, one in Acts and one in 2 Timothy, the language is used of, of God granting repentance. You must repent. That is something you must do. But yet the language is used of God must grant repentance. You must be helped. You must be drawn. You must be awakened. And because God does all of this, his calling is irresistible. Irresistible. Th that language sometimes bothers folks. People don't like it sometimes because they, they think that they say it takes away um, man's free will. Now, 
When we come to Romans 9, I'm going to try to take a bit of a, a fuller, have a bit of a fuller discussion on free will. But for now, let me, let me just confirm and make clear. You have, the Bible absolutely upholds, confirms, you and I, you have a will. You make decisions. But here's another truth that the Bible reveals, that one of these that you wouldn't know without the scriptures. Humans are regularly being worked on, influenced, and persuaded by spirits. Humans are regularly being worked on, influenced, and persuaded by demons. This is what is happening in temptation. The book of Acts even describes uh, times when Satan when, would introduce thoughts into people's hearts. We, we are worked on by spirits just in a regular basis. But influencing, persuading, being worked on does not take away someone's ability to make real choices with a real will. If you encounter somebody who is a, a really strong and gifted persuader, okay, they can talk you into a lot of things. Okay? Sometimes it's our own kids. Sometime ask my wife how I got her to finally go out with me, okay? There's a persistent persuasion, okay? Um, I love the fact that in the uh, adoption community, uh, there are some of those folks who just work really hard and they're really gifted. They're able to persuade other families uh, to adopt. But if that persuader is effective and another family chooses to adopt, that family has still chosen. It's a real decision. Well, listen, ineffectual calling God is persuading our wills. God is persuading us to want him. Now, of course, it is a persuasion that is greater and more powerful than any human. And in fact, um, in John 6, uh, 44, uh, that verse that we keep referring to there, the word draw, no one can come to me unless the father draws him. That word draw um, in Greek can also be translated as dragged. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me drags him. I kind of like that version, but the draws um, helps uh, us understand how it connect with, the, with how he is working with our will. God is not working against your will. He is bringing your will to want him. He is changing your taste, changing desires, changing the nature down to our very core. Um, now, look, if you'll look over uh, John 6 again, and look at verse 37 there, John 6, uh, 37. Part of the point that I've been trying to make is that this is always effective and it is irresistible. Look what he says there in verse 37. All that the Father gives me, there's foreknowledge and predestination. We've been making that point for a couple weeks. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Kind of sounds irresistible to me. Kind of sounds like it's always going to happen. Kind of sounds to me like there's no room there for sort of saying anything else. Like it's going to work. God wins. His plan will not be thwarted. All that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I, th I think all of the golden chain is encompassed in this passage there. All right. Those who have been foreknown will be predestined. Those who have been predestined will be called. And all who are called with this effective calling, our wills will be changed. We will want God. We will believe. He will become desirable to us. We will trust Christ. And when we believe, we are Justify. That leads us to the fourth link in the chain. And yes, I will pick up the pace here a little bit. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. Uh, now, if you're new to joining us in the series, I also want to do this. If you've been here, uh, repetition helps build memory and concrete it into our minds here. Um, turn a few pages back with me um, in Romans. Uh, go to Romans 1 for a second. I want to show you how this argument is built. Remind you, uh, for some of you, uh, how this argument has been built. Romans chapter 1, uh, Romans 1 through 11 is a logical argument, okay? Truths are being proven 
by scripture. Romans 1, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed. What happens there in verse 18 is that an argument begins to be built, okay, to prove this to you. You are a sinner. You are corrupted and you are under wrath. That's the argument that's built. The world is all the time, that's not just a modern thing, okay? Mankind's all the time arguing against this, saying, no, no, I'm really a good person. And chapter one, verse 18, all the way through chapter three, verse 20 is saying, oh no, you're really not. <laughs> you are not a good person, okay? Can I prove that to you? If you don't believe me, look at chapter three. Look at verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. That's the language of God. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You really are sinful, corrupted, and under the wrath of God. That's the argument that's built. A turning point happens in chapter three, verse 21. But now... Okay, there's the turning point, but now. And what begins to be explained through the rest of three, all of four, and all of five is this major doctrine of justification. Justification um, is, is explained here. Um, justification is becoming not guilty in the sight of God. Being counted as right according to the law of God. God. It is to be counted as righteous. It is a legal word. It was a legal word back whenever the New Testament was written. Uh, interestingly, we have kept it as a legal word, even in our uh, day and culture, to, to go to court. Uh, so let's say, for instance, that you were arrested for uh, maybe, say, unlawfully posting stickers on lamppost or something like this. Um, yes, that is a direct reference to something happening in the world. Let's say that you were arrested for this, um, and in the court, uh, you were then justified. What would be stated is... You're counted as right in the eyes of the law. Counted as righteous. You are declared not guilty in the eyes of the law. The law of God, higher than the law of man. To be justified is to somehow find a way to be counted as right in the eyes of the law of God. The only way for that to happen is perfection. We cannot attain that on our own. And that's why what the Bible reveals what Romans laid out in the argument is this is the plan of God to send Christ. Jesus in his work on the cross took our place in punishment in order to make a way for our sins to be taken care of, the wrath to be spent so that he takes our place. We get counted with the righteousness of Christ and therefore legally we are counted as right in the eyes of the law of God, counted as righteous. So to, to quickly remember what justification is, you need to remember this till the, till the day you die. Christian, in an instant, you need to be able to say what the definition of justification is. Justification is to be declared not guilty in the sight of God. Uh, again, Baptist Catechism. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification happens in a moment. It is not a process, okay? That's why it says it's an act. It happens in a moment. God draws, we believe, and when we believe, we are justified, declared right with God. And we are awaiting the day when we come to this fifth and final link. Those who be justified he also glorified. Now, so that we understand what the word glorified means. Remember that the word glory is a word that is meant to speak of exceeding beauty, exceeding greatness, resplendence, magnificence. We need to be careful not to misuse um, 
biblical words so that they don't eventually just become useless, okay? Kind of like what we've done with the word awesome, for instance. Okay, an ice cream cone is not awesome, okay? Needs to have a real meaning there. But the word glorious, for instance, you might see a sight. You might see a sunset, you know, on a mountaintop that you, you know, spent three days hiking to this peak. And you come home and somebody says, what was it like? And you're thinking to yourself, the word beautiful is just not big enough. So you might say something like, it was glorious. What, what you're trying to communicate is it, it was beautiful. It was magnificent, but to a degree that's, that's big, that's kind of ultimate. That, that is what the word glory is, is meant in scripture. God is all glorious, infinitely glorious, the fountain of all glory, the most glorious sight or experience you have ever encountered in this world is but a drop of the ocean that is the glory of God. And God has chosen to save us out of our defilement and bring us into the presence of his Glory, and that would be great enough, but he has gone farther to save us and give us glory of our own. Not as glorious as himself, of course, not to that extent, but images of his glory to save us out of our nasty defilement of sin and to give us honor, to make us shine with glory through eternity. Let me show you just a few verses that will help us in this. Uh, if, if you're in Romans, look at chapter eight again, find verse 21. Uh, Romans 8, 21, which we had already studied, um, talking about the groaning of creation. Verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The children of God are going to be made glorious and there will be a freedom and beauty that comes with it. Jump to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter four and another passage we reference somewhat often. 2 Corinthians four, find verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, that's aging, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, that's sanctification for the people of God. Now watch verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What we endure, the sacrifice, the suffering, the difficulties that we endure, the obedience, the service that we give to God in this age is storing up a weight of glory that we will receive and become in the age to come. And yes, it will be varying degrees of glory based on the amount of fruit obedience, service that we have given to God. Uh, just one more that I'll, uh, that I'll show you. Uh, first John, first John chapter three, first John three, two. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared yet what we will be. We know that when he, Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So, so do you see the picture here and connect it to Romans eight? What were we predestined to? To become conformed to the image of his son. Jesus is glorious. We will be made like him. Not to the same extent and degree, but we will be made images of his glory. We will be, this is the language of uh, first, second Peter, uh, partakers of the divine nature. We were chosen to become conformed to the image of his son. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is holy. 
Holiness is glorious. We have got to beat that into our brains that holiness is beautiful. Holiness is wonderful. Holiness honors God, delights God, and you and I will see holiness as beautiful as well, even if we don't yet. Jesus is holy. We will be made holy. Jesus is glorious. We will be made like him. We will be with the Lord always, enjoying his glory and shining forth the glory he gave to us. This is your future, Christian. This is where you are headed. To add in another line that we've seen in Romans 8, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. This is your hope. This is your strength. This is your peace. Your confidence is that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And then looking at this passage as a whole, just a final word of conclusion. Looking at the passage as a whole, do you see that this speaks to the certainty of salvation? It speaks to the security that the children of God have, that their, their salvation will not be taken away, cannot be lost. There is the security of those who are in Christ. Listen to John 6 again. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Do you hear the security of that? You know, that, that passage in John 6, 37 to 40, there's other verses that come after that. After reading just that, I just don't even know how it can possibly be believed that a born again, justified Christian could lose their salvation. Jesus says, this is what I was sent for. I was sent for that everyone that the father gave to me will come to me. And of those he gives me and who come to me, I lose nothing. Do you understand that if Jesus loses one soul, one soul who was truly born again and he loses them, he fails to provide what they need to keep going that Jesus has failed in the mission that his father gave him. Jesus doesn't fail. And another point made in the book of Hebrews is that God has sworn by his own name. You know why he swears by his own name? Because who else are you going to swear on? There's no name higher than his own. He is sworn by his own name to keep the covenant, to keep the covenant that he has made. If God loses a soul that he has determined to save, God has lied and he does not lie. This passage speaks to the security of those who are in Christ. When someone believes that salvation can be lost, and, and, and you may not be aware of this, but that is kind of a popular belief in Christendom overall. They don't understand what salvation is. They don't understand what its nature is. I'm not saying they don't know enough to be saved. I believe they can. But they have misunderstood what salvation is. If somebody thinks that salvation can be lost, they think that salvation is the decision that we make. Well, listen, a decision is involved in salvation, but that's not what salvation is. Salvation is the work of the power of God to deliver a soul from death to life. Yeah, a decision is involved in that. Lazarus made a decision to walk out of the tomb. But that's not what the big event of that day was. God calling him from death to life. Ephesians 1.13 says that when you turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you until the day of redemption. Do, do you think that God will accidentally uh, break that seal before the time that he will lose you? Do, do you believe that God who predestined a soul to salvation will then unpredestine them? That God who worked the new birth in a soul can then be unborn again? That somebody who was justified by the decree of God could then be 
unjustified that his decree is broken? That God would adopt somebody into his family, but then they would be kicked out? He promised to love them, but then he breaks his promise? Do you just see again and again and again, it is breaking the word of God, meaning his promises, his decrees, if salvation could be lost. If salvation could be lost, listen very carefully, that's not salvation. That's not, that's not salvation. A different word would need to be used. The Bible would need to say something like temporary vacation from the wrath of God. Salvation is to be saved. When God saves, he saves. Christian, you will often see the weakness of your faith. And some are then tempted to doubt their salvation. Let me encourage you with the fact that you're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by the cleanness of your life. It's grace. It's all of grace from start to finish. Your faith is weak and pathetic. And so is mine. It's God who is at work. God is the one keeping us. God is the one who, as Jude says, is able to keep us from stumbling. And as Romans 14 says, he is able to make us stand. Now, in the great mystery of it all, there's the human side. And don't ever forget it, Christian. There's the human side. As Romans 8 balances this out just so beautifully. Romans 8, we are children of God and heirs. If indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. There is the call that we must persevere and we must endure. And it is only those who persevere to the end who are the true children of God. So let us never get fatalistic and lazy. But when it comes to your security, if you look at the future and worry, worry that, that maybe you will not stay saved or something, you preach to yourself the security that is in the power of God. If you are in Christ, then you belong to him. Let me read just a, a couple verses from that John 10 passage that I read last week. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Do you notice that Jesus said there both? No one can snatch a soul out of his hand and also of the father's. No one can snatch a soul out of his. Are you worried that Satan will seduce you away from your salvation? He's got to go through Jesus and the father. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If left entirely to ourselves, yeah, absolutely, we would fall away. But you are not left entirely to yourselves. By the grace of God, he's given us his spirit. And God is ensuring that those that he has called will be justified and those who are justified will be glorified. Your security is in the integrity, the faithfulness, and the sovereignty of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you once again for more beautiful promises, truths, realities, graces that you have worked. Thank you for our calling, our justification. Thank you for the glorification you have already given believers who have passed and thank you for the hope of our glorification that is to come. Lord, we pray, keep us. Father, give us confidence, give us encouragement, give us joy. I pray that this will lead to greater obedience because we are so filled with love and gratitude and just adoration for what you have done. Stir us, oh God, lead us to become a people that is more conformed to the image of Christ. Bless us, oh Lord, um, as we're gonna depart here. Make us to be people who live lives worthy of the gospel. I pray for any in the room, that has not turned to Christ, not believed. Please God, I pray, awaken them. Awaken them, change their taste buds, open their eyes, call them to life, change their nature, give them a new heart and turn them to yourself. I pray, Lord, they will believe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Jesus.
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.